We've been in a, a long series on the book of John. I know some people have said long is not the right word. You know, interminable is a better word. But it's been a great series. I've loved it. God has really worked in my life. We are not going to do John. He's like, oh, you built it up, and then you just blew it away. But what we're doing is piggybacking on last week. Last week was Easter, and I, I want to talk some about the Bible and why we can trust it. This is so important for us. And so normally, you know, we have, and I'm, I'm big on this, we, we dig down into the Word of God. We do a study of the Word of God, expository uh, preaching, following how the book is written. That's normally what we do, but every once in a while, we just do on a rabbit trail, and this is, to this, is, this is one of those. And so this morning, what I'm calling it is eyewitness testimony, and this is key for us. Here's the deal. Um, in, in our day and age, the, the, the issue we can have sometimes is with our faith is that people think faith is just some sort of blind, like close your eyes and just step off a ledge. And that's not at all what biblical faith is. Biblical faith, uh, reason, is a very big part of it. It's a reasonable faith. We access and, and, and we think through the known evidence. This reminds me of, if you remember, last week at the tomb, right? John is using these words. He's using these words that they come in and they are not seeing what they expect. This is something they totally did not expect. So they're furiously working through it they're trying to understand what they see and integrate that with their faith, right? And then, and then they do, because it turns out that what they see, their, their vision is too small for what really happened. You know, the first thought they have is Jesus' body was stolen. That's the first thought. And then they find out it's not that at all. He was resurrected. And so we assess the known evidence. We see how it fits. We come to a reasoned conclusion, and then we make a commitment to trust and believe. That's what faith is. It's not unreasonable. It's very reasonable. It's not unrational. It's very rational. Now, what I'm going to teach about today, I did not come up with all of this all on my own. There's a guy um, that I, I kind of know. We, I know. We, we email back and forth some over the years. Um, he is way, he swims in the deep end of the pool, if you know what I'm saying. I'm in the shallow end, but this guy is so much over my head. But he dumbed it down for me and has helped me with this. His name is Peter J. Williams. He teaches at Cambridge University, and he is the warden of Tyndale House, which sounds so cool. I want to be one of those. Um, it's a research institute at Cambridge University, and, and he has allowed me to just use this material, and I appreciate it because we're going to talk about the four Gospels and the book of Acts, and are they historically, historically accurate documents? And Because here's what the big argument is today. The big argument is that the Gospels and the book of Acts are not based on eyewitness testimony. They're something that's been made up and handed down over the years till finally the church, in an effort to control people, made the canon, the books, and put them all together, wrote some of them, and this is, this is how, there's a guy, his name is Bart Ehrman, and he is one of the most, foremost, atheist textual critics. And so this is what he says, just so you know what the, what the argument is. He says, what do you suppose happened to the stories about Jesus over the years, as they were told and retold, not as disinterested news stories reported by eyewitnesses, but as propaganda meant to convert people to faith, told by people who had themselves heard it fifth hand, sixth hand, or maybe 19th hand. Did you or your kids ever play the telephone game at a birthday party? 
He says, this is what we got. When you hold your Bible in your hand, your Bible that's on your phone, when you pull it out, he's saying, this is what you got. It's 19th hand. It was written 150 years after Jesus died. You can't trust it. Now, it's funny because he uses, he uses the illustration of the telephone game, and that's kind of disingenuous. I mean, that's kind of like, I don't want to say he's lying, but did I even get to that part there? But here's the thing. That's a game that's designed to screw up a message. If you've ever played that game, right, you're only allowed to say it one time. You're supposed to whisper it. The object is to mess the, 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 the message up. So when he picks that, I think he's, he's kind of... He's, He's not being quite honest with us. So if we're going to talk about this, and if we're going to answer him and others who are like him, we have, to, we have to look into the facts. And the cool thing is, just in the last 20 years, amazing stuff has been happening. More and more discoveries are coming up that show the Gospels were written way earlier than anyone thought. They were not passed orally for 150 years. They were written down quickly, not long after the death of Christ. Except maybe, John is the one who wrote later. You know, but he was still, he was this eyewitness. Because our faith, we have to understand, I mentioned this, it's a reasonable faith. The Gospels and the book of Acts are the foundation. This is the foundation that we have to go off of as we, as we in our walk with Christ, as we learn to trust Christ. We have four written testimonies that a man named Jesus lived and ministered in powerful ways, including miracles. And he taught that he was going to die for our sins. And he taught that he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures in his life. And he taught that he was the word of God, the God in the flesh. And then he died for the sins of the world. And to prove it, he was raised from the dead. If that's true, nothing else matters. You think about it. What is more important than that? Nothing is more important than that. We mess around with our little things. Of, we, we mess around with toys and trucks and houses and stuff. And all of that's like a, C.S. Lewis says, like a kid playing with mud pies compared to being able to go to the beach and see the ocean. So if the Gospels are accurate testimonies, Nothing else matters. If they're just like other religious stories and they just paint this big mythological picture and they don't bear any semblance to reality, then it doesn't matter. So we're going to dive into that. And the point is this. You may think, hey, Bob, I don't, I trust it. I, I don't. Well, there are people you know who don't. Or it may be that occasionally in your life, these doubts arise and you wrestle with them because it's a struggle. And I understand and so we want to deal with that. We want to address with it because this is a pressing matter in our culture. This is a pressing matter in our day because what Bart Ehrman says is what a lot of people believe. And they easily misrepresent and they easily miss the point. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about this. Let me just say Matthew probably wrote his gospel in Judea. Now it's important where they wrote it. I'll get to that. He wrote his gospel probably in Judea, maybe in Jerusalem itself probably in the late 40s. Uh, the dates are pushing towards that. Might, it might have been earlier, but at this point we're saying late 40s, maybe early 50s. Okay, so what we're saying is 12 to 15 years after the death of Jesus, the first gospel is written. Mark wrote his gospel in Italy, probably in Rome. Uh, Peter was talking about Jesus, and evidently Mark just started writing everything down that Peter said, getting it from the eyewitness. 
And it was not that long after Matthew. Luke wrote his gospel in Greece, okay? So now we got Italy on your map. Italy with the boot, Greece over here, all right? Judea down here in that day and age, talking about thousands of miles apart. There's no way they collaborated. See, that's what's very important because everybody says that, a lot of people say, oh, they just worked together on this. John wrote from Ephesus in Turkey near the end of his life, probably to fill out a lot of the things that the other gospels didn't touch on. He brings out a lot of stuff that they didn't touch on and things that he thought should be there. So we're going to look at these four gospels. We'll look at the book of Acts. I mean, it kind of comes in tangentially, tangentially, but mainly the four gospels. So for historians, how do they test for knowledge that it has historical accuracy? This is what they look at. They look at agriculture. Do they get the agriculture right. Now, now think about that. If you're in Italy, how do you know the agriculture of Judea? The botany, do they get the plant life right? Economics, do they know the economic system that's involved there? Do they know that in Judea there were multiple coinages for different things and different places and special coins just for the temple? Uh, personal names. This is a huge one. Do they get names right? The religion. Do they understand the religion? The topography, the architecture, the culture, especially as, it, as, it, as we look at this, it, the culture with burial practices is very important. Geography, law, politics, social stratification, weather. This is how they determine whether an ancient doc- document is actually historically reliable and not even an ancient document, any document. Because if it gets a lot of these things wrong, it's not reliable. It's not accurate. It's not worth studying in that way. So I can't go through all these, but let's just pick a couple. Okay, Bob, you say, let's do, because you don't have a choice. Names. This is the test of what people are called. Now, at first, we might think this isn't that big of a deal, but here's the deal. How do you get significant details right thousands of miles away without making it up. There's no Google Earth. There's no maps, no nothing. And so when we talk about names, the question is simply this. Do they use the right names? Now, that might not seem that hard, but if you think about it, it's very difficult because names change over time. If this was written 150 years later, names have changed in 150 years. We see how it works. We know how it works. You can look it up, right? In in From 1900 to about 1965, 1970, the name Jacob was a very rare name. Then about 1970, the name Jacob started getting more popular. And then around 87 to to 98, it exploded and became the number one name in the United States of America for five years. It was the number one name. And then it crashed right? And now it's, again, one of the more rare names. Not as rare as it used to be, but still, it's more of a rare name. Why? Why is that? Because names change all the time. Names become popular, and then when they get real common, everybody's like, well, I don't want to use that name because everybody has that name, right? If you, ever have, if, you, if you ever have children or you've had children, naming your child can be a very traumatic experience. I just want you to know that. So Jacob went like, and so how do we know? And that's just in the U.S. I'm talking about. We can look it up, but how do we know that they got the names right? 
right? Not just names, but in the right proportion. You think about it. If, if Jacob was the number one name in the year 1998, that means that 20 years later, right, in, 19, in, tw- in 2018, if you went to a big crowd and said, how many Jacob he, uh, Jacobs are here, you'd get quite a few hands because it's a popular name. So it's not just do they know the names, do they get the frequency right when they mention? Are names mentioned in the Bible in the right frequency? Now, I should have told you this. This is not a sermon. You can tell that right now. This is more like an academic deal, but this is important for us. And so every once in a while, we're going to just take time out to do things like this, and this is one of those times. In 2003, some uh, statisticians started getting together all the different ways we know names in the first century A.D. We know names from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know names from ossuaries, the burial boxes that oftentimes had a genealogy carved into them. We know names from literature, like from the works of Josephus. We know names from the Romans because the Romans were record keepers. They kept lots of records. And so, after about five years, they compiled this database of the top 3,000 names in Israel in the first century A.D. The top 3,000. We know what they are. And so here's the thing. The Gospels purport to be the life of Jesus in Israel in the first century A.D., but three of them were not written in Israel. Do they get the names right? That's a huge thing. And we could have sheets and sheets and slides and slides of info, but, but let me just narrow it down to just two quick things. The top two male names in Israel were Simon and Joseph. That They were 15.6% of the population of Israel at the time of Jesus. They are mentioned, Simon and Joseph, 18.2% of the men mentioned in the four Gospels in the books of Acts are Simon and Joseph. That's so close, there's, no, there's hardly any margin of error there. It's amazing. That's, that is, I know we look at it and go, oh, okay. No, to historians, that's stunning. That's stunning. It's, it's incredible. The top nine male names are mentioned 41, they were 41.5% of the population of Israel. The men mentioned in the four Gospels and Acts use the top nine names 40.3% of the time. It even narrows this, the, 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 error for margin, the margin for error. It's unbelievable. It's the exact same thing with women. It's easier with women because they estimate almost half the women in Israel were named Mary at the, in the first century AD. So it's a little easier because it's just like lots of Marys. But here we go. We have this pattern. Now think about this. Four different writers writing four, five books from different places all over the world, and they align with what we know statistically was going on at that time. And this is interesting because in Egypt at that time, there was a huge Jewish population, right? And names vary in places. There was a huge Jewish population. They had popular names. Popular Jewish names in Egypt were Sabbateus, Dositheus, Ptolemaeus. Have you ever heard anyone named Sabbateus? Dositheus, Ptolemaeus, maybe a pet, 
No. Why? Because the Gospels were written about Jews in Judea, not in Egypt. Not long after the Gospels came out, probably about 100, maybe 150 to 200 years later, suddenly books came out of different Gospels. You know, the, the Gospel of Thomas. And, the, and what they found was those books miss it with names and places and geography by a mile. One of them uses a bunch of people's names like Sabbateus. Why? Because that one was written in Egypt. And it's like a fan fiction. It's like this. Suppose you had to write a story. And it's the only way I can explain this. You had to write a story about Paris, France, 150 years ago. And you can't use the internet or any books to check names. What French names would you use? For all those people you're going to write about, how many French names do you know? I'm like, Jacques, Pierre, Pepe Le Pew. I mean, I'm running short already. I don't know the names. You're supposed to write, and it was 150 years ago. So even if I lived in Paris, France, there's a good chance I'd get most of the names wrong because they were different 150 years ago. And now I'm going to write that book with four other people in whole different places, and I'm not allowed to talk to them. And we're going to agree on all the names. Think about that. That's unbelievable. Because here's the thing, even if you know a bunch of French names, your intuitions, your intuitions of what names are like is, are, are not good intuitions. Uh, when we were, our kids, we had two kids at the time, and my wife was pregnant. We were going to have a little girl. And so we went through the, the, yes, the hell on earth that I call naming. And we were coming up with names. And she said, I like Reagan. And I was like, Ronald Reagan? And she said, no, 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 not R-E-A-G-R-A-G-E-N, Reagan. I like that name. And I said, I love you, but that's not a name. There's nobody named Reagan in the world. It's not a name. And she said, yes, it is a name. I said, no, it's not. You made it up. You just made that up. I got some ideas. How about Floopin or Bliffer? I can make up names and match you name for name, but they're not names. Reagan is not a name. And you know what? I know God has a sense of humor. I can prove it so many times, and this is one of those times. Not a week later, this little girl goes bolting by, and I hear, Reagan, stop running. And I looked at her, and because she, she, she stopped, I said, is, is your name Reagan? Mm-hmm. Do you, do you spell it? <laughs> and I looked at her, and I realized she was just about to go stranger danger, right? So I just said, wow, good, good for you. And, and I'll be honest, inside I was going, crap. I'm wrong. I hate to be wrong. I hate to be wrong. Because the last thing I had said to my wife was, if I could just meet one person with that name, I'd believe it. And I met someone. See, your intuition of how names should be is not a good guide of how names are. Names, some names you don't think are very popular are actually very popular. They're just not popular in your circle. Some names that you think are very rare are actually not very rare. They're just rare in your circle. 
And so if you're going to write a book 150 years later, how are you going to get names right? It's impossible. It's impossible. Because if you think about it, the hardest thing to remember is people's names, right? Everybody struggles. I struggle with that agony, you know, of someone you know, but you can't place the name. And so you're desperately trying to say something that will help them say their name. Because names are hard to remember. Why are names hard to remember? Why? Because there's no real reason for you to have the name you have other than your parents gave it to you. My name is Robert. Do I look like a Robert? No. Who does? I don't know. Right? You, you, get, you get very few times where you go, your name fits you. Unless, you know, your name is like grumpy or something. You know, they go, okay, yes. But, right? Think about that. Names are so hard to remember. I see a movie. I come home. I tell my friends or I tell my kids, oh, boom, that was great. Oh, man, what was that guy's name? I don't remember his name. He just got blowed up. You know, I, just, I don't know. I don't know how that, I, I struggle with names. We remember things. We remember the big things. Think about it. We remember the big things. What are the big things in the gospel? Miracles. Resurrection. Those are the big things. They have no trouble remembering those things. And yet, they are so familiar. They are eyewitnesses, so they remembered the little things too. They remembered them all. That's incredible. They remembered where they went. They remember who, who they were with. They remembered what they did. They remembered what Jesus said and what did. See, what, this, what does this show us? This shows us that because these documents cannot be fifth or sixth or 19th hand, it would be impossible to get just the names. Of all those things that historians look at, just one of them would be impossible unless they were eyewitnesses and they saw it all happen with their own eyes. So what conclusion, just with names. The Gospels have a pattern of names we would expect them to have if they are reporting what real people said and did. And the pattern would be too complex for an ancient forger to produce, much less four forgers all at once and agreeing with each other. All right, so names. And then that was the, the longer one. We'll move along here. The next one is the test of geography. Do they get the geography right? Because what do ancient maps show? I mean, like if you were in Rome and you went to the library and you said, I need a map of Israel, this is what you'd get. This is a map from 50 AD. It is almost impossible to understand what you're looking at. In the middle, just to the left, is the Mediterranean Sea. So below it, right there, is Africa vastly underdone, right? Africa is so much bigger than that. Above it is, is Europe, and it's skewed in a lot of ways. But, and you can't zoom in on this, I zoomed in, and right where Israel is, it's just totally overwritten that whole area and more with the name Syria. And there are no, not even Jerusalem is on that map. Jerusalem wasn't big enough to get on that map a map of the world by a Roman 
in 50 AD. So if you were going to write it in Rome and you said, oh, I need to know some town names. So you went to the library. That's what you'd get. You wouldn't even get Jerusalem. And so the question is, do they get the geography right? They talk about Jerusalem. They talk about Nazareth. It talks about Bethphage, which is a city that only has been recently discovered. A little tiny village is not a city. Chorazin, Sychar. How would someone in Greece or Turkey or Italy, and that's the map they got, how would they figure those names out? A little town in the middle of nowhere. How would you know about it? What is it near? What are the people's names? You would not know. So they know that. Not only that, along with the test of geography, they know traveling times. The traveling times that are listed as they walk to different places are incredibly accurate. So they knew traveling times. They knew how things worked geographically too. They went up to Jerusalem. Why did they go up to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem's on a hill. So no matter what, came, what direction you came from, I remember reading a guy, he was a, he was a non-believer, and he mocked that idea of where they were, and they went up to Jerusalem. He said, that wasn't north, that was south. They went down to Jerusalem. What a bunch of dopes. Except they walked uphill to Jerusalem. He didn't realize that, or he ignored it conveniently. They walked south, but they went up to Jerusalem. The Gospels get that. Now, that fan fiction we were talking about, like one of them that uh, for a while was kind of famous, is called the Gospel of Philip. And it, and it got that there was a Jerusalem, but it thought Nazareth was Jesus' middle name. There's one called the Gospel of Peter. It gets all the town names wrong. It lists a bunch of them, but most of them are Egyptian-sounding. There's one called the Gospel of the Savior. They didn't even bother mentioning town. They, all of these things, it's just like fan fiction. You, if you hear someone tell you, oh, there's some lost Gospels, let me tell you something. Encourage them. Most people who say that, they don't read them. Because once you read them, they're goofy beyond belief at times. There's just craziness in them. Right now, big, I heard some guy the other day was talking. He says, well, you know, there's the Gospel of Thomas. I said, okay, let's talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Do you know at the end of the Gospel of Thomas, Peter and the disciples say, Mary can't come to heaven with us. She's a woman. And what does Jesus say? Don't you talk about women that way. Some of my disciples were women. Don't you do that. Women were the first to don't. No, Jesus says, I'll change her into a man, then she can come. That's how the gospel, that's goofy, right? I mean, that's just, what it is, is it just doesn't match up with what we see in the gospels. It's fan fiction. It's stuff people wrote and made up as they went along. So, the evidence of the four Gospels is this. The people knew the geography. They knew the towns. They knew what was uphill, what was downhill, where the water. They knew all of that stuff, and they reported it accurately. Let's talk about the test of botany. That is plants, and there's huge stuff on that. One of the leading institutions on this is Old Dominion University. It's pretty cool. They have a huge database. I got some of my stuff from them. So do you remember... Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. What kind of tree? Sycamore tree, right? So we have something very interesting there. A very specific tree is mentioned. Now, here's the question. Were there sycamore trees in Jericho, in Judea, in that area? Were there sycamore trees? Because that's pretty important, right? Here's a map. Their best estimate of sycamore trees around the first century AD, mostly Southern Africa, except 
right up there in Israel. Nowhere else in the world, nowhere else in the world are there that is that tree, are there sycamore trees. No one else, nowhere else. So if you're writing this in Rome, how do you come up with a sycamore tree? If you're writing this in Greece, if you're writing this, you know, all these different, in, in, uh, in Turkey, how do you come up with that? Because they were there. And this is so key. They were eyewitnesses. This is that, that, that test. And it, there's tons of things like that on botany. The fourth one is the test of economics. All right? That is, do they get the, do they get the economics of, this, of that area right? Let me take you to a scripture here. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. All right? So Jesus mentions a very specific thing. Let me show you. That round thing there with the hole in the middle of the stick is in, that's a millstone. That's what he's talking about when he says a millstone. Now, is there any particular reason why Jesus chose millstone when he taught this? Well, we know this. He was in Capernaum. We also know this. The major manufacturer of millstones in Israel was in Capernaum. So he used a local product to illustrate his teaching. It would be like somebody around here saying, it would be better for them if you tied an anchor to their foot and threw them off the deck of an aircraft carrier. Right? Because we would all know, aircraft carriers here, yes, we get that. We get that. And the Bible is full of those types of things. A, a story that fits the local economy. This is the sort of thing that people get right when they're there. They get right on names. They get right on the places that are named. They get right on the shape of the houses. They get right on the shape of the temple. They get it right on coinage. They get it right on the social stratification. They get it right in the religious setting and how that worked out in everyday life. They have so many opportunities to get it totally wrong, and they don't. Now, one of the interesting things and uh, that I think is, 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 is so powerful as we look at this is there's sometimes that the Bible explains itself in different passages that if you just read one passage, you would not be able to get everything that was going on there. But other passages fill in. Let me, let me tell you, feeding of the 5,000, it's in all four of the Gospels, all right? And I, I love this because I think this is such a, such a powerful idea of how four independent writers at different times all over the world all coincided, dovetailed beautifully, right? Feeding of 5,000. So here we go. This is in all four of the Gospels. And I'm not sitting here telling you I'm proving that the feeding of 5,000 happened. I'm telling you that the people who recorded this were there and they saw it. So that you have to then assume that they're just totally lying or they got the big stuff right along with the little stuff. So it's in all four of the Gospels. Here we go. Mark 6.31 says there were many people coming and going. Why? Mark doesn't tell us. He just tells us there's a lot of people coming and going. But John's, in, in the feeding of the 5,000, in John 6, 4, he says, oh, by the way, it was Passover time. He doesn't mention there's a lot of people coming and going, but he, we know when it's Passover, everyone is on the move. This huge migration to the city of Israel. So there's all these people. We don't know why. John tells us why. It's Passover time. Then the next verse, John Jesus has been speaking, and, and John tells us Jesus asks Philip where to buy bread. Why does Jesus, of all the disciples, ask Philip, hey, Philip, 
Where can we buy bread? We got 5,000 men here. We got all these women. We got all these children. They're going to be hungry. We need to feed them. Where can we buy bread? So he asked Philip. John doesn't tell us why, but he does tell us this. In the next two verses, Philip and Andrew respond to him. Like, like he asked Philip, where can we buy bread? And Andrew butts in. Why? What's going on here? All right, so we keep looking. Luke 9.10 tells us the feeding of the 5,000 was near Bethsaida. It's right near this little town, near the shore of the sea called Bethsaida. Okay, thanks. You know, thanks, Luke. Doesn't tell us anything that particular except this. In John 1.44, John happens to mention that Philip and Andrew are from Bethsaida. Oh, oh, so what's going on here? Think about it. You know, if I read through John's gospel, this appears to have no significance at all. But these other bits of information pull the whole story together, and I suddenly realize what Jesus is doing. He's asking the local guy, where can we get food? The natural thing to do. It turns out Andrew butted in because he's a local guy. So Jesus says, Philip, Where's the closest food lion? We got to feed these people. They're hungry. Right? And Philip's like, I don't know. And so Andrew pops in and says, they're all closed. The food lines are all closed. And there are not enough 7-Elevens for us to get one taquito for everybody. Right? And then there'd have to be another miracle because anyone who eats taquitos gets food poisoning. Right? So you'd have to do more miracles. Jesus, like they're saying, there's no food. Why? The local guys. Jesus asked the local guys. That's the perfectly natural thing to do. The individual authors don't fill us in on that. It's when they put them together, you begin to see it. Because they're all putting in what they think is important. In John 6, 9, it says the little kid there had barley loaves. Not wheat loaves. You know, not, he had Barley loaves. Well, we know what time of year it is. And guess what harvest just happened? The barley harvest. So we have these, I, these things that all fit together. Then we have an interesting one, because I, I can remember thinking about this before. Mark 6.39 says there's, the grass was very green. You know, it's like John 6.10 says there was much grass. It was a lot of grass. It was tall, and it was very green. And I'm like, you know, are they in the lawn care business? Why are they noticing this kind of stuff? What's so important about this? And they mention this. Now, here's something interesting. In the last 20 years, they discovered in Tiberias, a nearby Roman city, the records of rainfall, including the first century AD that the Romans took track of. And during the three years before and the three years after of about when this would have happened, every year they had excessive rainfall the three months before Jesus fed the 5,000, before that date. And then they had three weeks of sunny weather. So there was much green grass. And we wouldn't understand that. They're just recording what they're seeing, but what they record, it all starts to dovetail together. Why? How can that be? Because it's true. That's the only way it can work. Because even if you have forgers, they can't go to Tiberias and forge rainfall records. 
And so all of this, this is what we see happens in the Bible numerous times. And so what's the big picture here? The big picture is this. The gospel writers, they get the, they get the, the hardest, the smallest, hardest details right to incredible degree, 100% as far as we can tell. And if that's true, then it's logical to expect them to get the major details right. Major details like what Jesus taught, who he claimed to be, miracles. You know, last week was the resurrection, and uh, we, it was Easter, and talking about the resurrection, we talked about something. And one of the things that I find is interesting is, for many historians, there's no debate on certain things about Jesus. There's no real debate that there was a man named Jesus who lived. There's, there's no. You'll hear people occasionally say, I don't think Jesus ever lived. I think it's all made up. But you know what? Historians are like, no, that's baloney. We got too much evidence. Right? So, so there's, there's no real debate on that. There, people tend to agree that there was a man named Jesus. He was killed by the Romans, and he was buried. And they tend to agree that the tomb was later found empty. Now, you don't agree on why. But they agree that the tomb was found empty. They also agree on this. There's a wide range of people who believe they saw Jesus after he was supposedly raised from the dead. There's this large range of people who believe that. And so we can look at this and we can say, okay, so we've established certain facts already. Now, what is harder to believe? That's what we get to because simple is always better. And here's the thing. What is hard to believe is that thieves came and stole the body. Why? Because it's real easy to check. He raised from the dead? You know, we, we, who did it? We start checking, we start checking. I should say that's part of the swoon theory. But also with the thieves, with the thieves stealing the body, if you remember last week, we talked about how difficult that would have been and how worthless it would have been in so many ways, except for maybe the spices. But we also know this, that so many people said they saw Jesus. How do we deal with that? Because I want you to think about this. The first person who saw Jesus were women. We've talked about this a bunch of times. Women were not legal, legally accepted witnesses in those days. So it would have been a terrible thing to make that up. But then we have it recorded that Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus appeared in Judea and Galilee, in different towns, in the countryside, indoors, outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment. He was close. He was distant. He was on a hill. He was by a lake. He was groups of men. He was groups of women. He was sitting. He was standing. He was walking. He was eating. He was always talking and teaching. So we have all these people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who saw this. Now, how are we going to, how are we going to justify that? If the body of Jesus was stolen, then, then, then what's going to happen is for these, so many of these people, they will, they, that's the first thing they thought, right? First thing they thought was the body was stolen. That's their first, because that made the most sense. But what happened? Jesus started appearing to them. And so for all those people, they decided he's been raised from the dead. And when you start thinking about all those different ways that he saw them, all those different situations, all those different scenarios, he ate, he drank, he taught, large groups, small groups, here, they're all over the place. The number grows to such a large amount. How would all of those people be willing to give their life for something they knew that wasn't true if they were all made up? And this is one of the things historians really grapple with. 
um, I was reading a guy the other day, and he was saying, there is no doubt something happened, and it changed their lives. So much they were willing to die for it. And he said, our struggle is, what could that be? And I'm going, uh, re- uh, resurrection, maybe? That'd be my guess. What would change their lives like that? And they saw him. They saw him, and he taught them. And you know, if the body is stolen, that's, that's, that's going to be a deceit that's going to be hard to, to hold in, especially when all these people are saying, well, no, wait, we've seen him. We've seen him. So what do we do with that? This does not prove anything in terms of miracles or the resurrection. But it does push us in a direction. One of the simplest explanations for what happened to those people is that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the problem. That's the explanation that most people don't want. So they come up with other ones as they work to to argue against it. But then they have to show that theirs is, is, is as equally simple. And one of the things you'll notice if you start reading this about what people say as they deal with the miracles in Jesus, they come up with these incredible coincidences and these incredible uh, explanations that are very hard to follow a lot of times. And they have to have a whole bunch of them because there's a bunch of miracles. Instead of the one simple thing that goes, uh, maybe he was who he said he was. So all this happened, which is the very simple explanation. And so we have scriptures. We have the word of God that we can trust. I remember we went over this in John chapter 6. Uh, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have those same words. We have the same words that, that, that Peter had. We have the same teachings that Peter had. They are the words of eternal life. They are the words that change everything. And so Paul tells us, let the word of God dwell, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you teach it, admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. So to wrap it all up, we have these documents, four books and, and, and Acts 5 that are incredibly accurate to a degree that is amazing and exceptional and miraculous, written in different areas by different people all over the world. And they agree. They agree to the, to the degree that they even mention things like grass growing. To the degree where they even mention things like, oh, by the way, he happens to be from that town. An incredible degree of accuracy. So then the question becomes, are, am I, are you, am I willing to say, I believe this? I believe. That's a step of faith. We go through the rational, we go through the arguments, and then we make that step of faith where we say, I believe it. I will live in light of it. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And I will follow him for the rest of my life. That's where it leads us. That's where it pushes us. And that's where each of us have to make a decision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, that you were behind all of this. You worked to make these five books be this incredibly accurate depiction of your son and what he did and what you did through him. So, Father, we look forward to as we study it, 
your Holy Spirit makes it come alive as he works in us. So, Father, help us to be willing to look, to evaluate, to honestly uh, consider what it says and then live accordingly with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.